so no matter what Max is going to throw at me or my own son, even if little Brooks comes running out here in a little bit, I'll be ready to go this morning. Uh, let's do this. We're in this series in Colossians, which has been a good series. Well, it's been a good series. We just started the series. Um, but again, this, this kind of city of Colossae right there in the middle, which Paul never visits, but that, that he writes this letter to, um, you know, kind of giving them some instruction, some guidance. Again, this little city right here in the middle of this would be kind of modern-day Turkey. Um, here's where this little town was destroyed in an earthquake in about the year 60. Um, and so Paul writes this letter. But we, we learn a lot about this, this church. And I want to start this morning because we're going to talk about kind of songs and poetry. And you've got to turn to somebody next to you and you've got to answer this question. If there is a song which you can quote the entire lyrics or... If there is a lip sync contest, you would win it, hands down. So, turn to the person next to you and talk about that song that is, that is your jam, your go-to. Don't Stop Believing is the, is the white man's anthem. I was thinking I was thinking of the wolf song. Wolf song? Yeah. <laughs> Alright, let's go around. Christy starting with you. Your jam is you would win a lip sync contest in Woo! Piano Man. Brian? <laughs> oh man. Like literally if you put it on, I could sing all the songs. Yeah. Johnny, what's your favorite song? What's your favorite song? Oh, you're an Elvis guy, that's right. I forgot about that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, which Moana song is it? The one that? Oh man, is it the Mo? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Glistens. Nothing, Rob. Nothing. Man, oh my god, we're gonna we're gonna do a karaoke morning one morning. We're gonna see really how we're gonna shake it down. Oh, this is great. I 
Oh my gosh. From Piano Man to Nelly, I, that's just... Brian? Robin, is am I? Can you multitask here at the? I feel like when a song comes on from like my high school days, once I hear it, like I can sing the whole thing. You're really good at so I'm not good at song lyrics. You're really good at song lyrics, but you cannot like you cannot. If I said, well, who sang it or what's the name of the song, and you have no idea, but like the lyrics, I can tell you the name of the song. But I can't tell you any of the lyrics. When I was, uh, here's what I want to talk about. Because what happens in church, I would say this, is that often what's more important in church, and I have to be careful about how I say this, often more important in church than the sermon I'll preach is the songs we'll sing afterwards, right? Because what happens is, is when you leave this place, what you will leave, what will leave in your head is not necessarily a, you know, this grand argument that I'll make or a portion of the sermon. Maybe there'll be a little something that we'll, we'll kind of take with you. But oftentimes when you leave, you'll leave with a, for me at least, I'll leave with a lyric or a song or a melody that kind of, that kind of um, just kind of carries in my head. And what happens is um, those, those lyrics, those melodies, those tunes, um, they have a significant impact, right? Would we all agree they have a significant impact kind of on the way that we navigate the ups and downs of life? So here's an extreme example, not necessarily a church example. Um, Brian, you mentioned Motley Crue. Maybe the generation after Motley Crue. Um, the, huh? I was a big grunge, and one of my favorite bands was these guys, Rage Against the Machine. I probably shouldn't have shown this. I forgot that this is the cover. Um, this is pretty of a, a grotesque kind of cover. Huh? Yeah, sorry about that. Um, this, was their, this was their kind of debut album back in the 90s, and they had a song. Um, any, I know that there's like, Brian would know Rage Against the Machine. Anyone else? I mean, the, the, all of their albums have profanity streaming the whole time. But there's a song on this album called Killing in the Name of where yeah. the last refrain is, F you, I won't do what you told me. And you're right. And he sings it, chants it, you know, and everybody, you know. So you kind of have, you know, that. And this was something that I listened to in the angst of my high school years, you know, thinking like I was going to stick it to the man or something like that. But, you know, you have this kind of mentality and you, you listen to this. And then something that I'm listening to now, a little bit beyond my high school years, and, and a lot of folks I've shared with, but there's a, a band called Maverick City. I, I don't know, kind of gospel uh, worship, you know, kind of, I would kind of put them in, in, that, in that realm. And oftentimes as I've listened to them, the things that kind of just um, bounce around in my brain, you know, they, ha they sing the doxology, which is, you know, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Um, they would sing, you know, different lyrics or different verses from the Bible, such as like the joy of the Lord is my strength. But it wouldn't take you much convincing, right, to say that if I woke up with, say, Rage Against the Machine in my head and some of those lyrics, right, versus waking up with, you know, some of the lyrics, say, from some Christian music or whatever, it doesn't have to, right, it wouldn't take much convincing to say that, man, Eric, depending on what you would listen to, that would probably greatly affect your demeanor in life, the way that you would approach life, right? Would, would everybody agree with that, right? And again, that's an extreme example, 
but I think that we could we could kind of see the nuance of that principle in general. We could probably see the, the, the strength of that argument in general, um, depending on what you listen to. It's really important what kind of songs bounce around in our head. Now, what does that have all that, all that have to do with the book of Colossians? If you have a Bible, which I did not put Bibles and pens out this morning, maybe it's just one of those mornings, but I know that most of y'all have your phones with you. If anybody wants a pen or paper, I see that there is a stack there. Anybody need a Bible? I can grab one real quick. Everybody, see everybody checking the phone. We're going to go to Colossians. <clears throat> So, honestly, the 15 through 20 are going to be the main verses. We'll read up to 23, although I'm not going to hit much on 23, or 21 through 23, although there's <clears throat> some real beauty in that as well, too. But why don't we each take a verse, or a few of us just take a verse. Um, so, somebody starting, or I'll start in verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Thank you all. Um, N.T. Wright calls these verses 15 through 20. What's interesting, he calls them, and, and maybe you didn't pick up on this right away. He says, generally and rightly reckoned among the most important Christological, which is kind of theo theology about Jesus, right? Like, how do we understand and under the person of Jesus, right? Some of the most important, kind of as we create theology about Jesus, passages in the New Testament, right? Um, when we encounter this text, again, we probably didn't encounter this with great, wow, that was so profound and meaningful and deep. But one of the things that you have to understand when you encounter this text, we just read it straight off the page as if it were part of a letter, prose, instruction. Uh, I wonder if it would be helpful um, to kind of separate, like I know in, in my Bible too, probably on your phones too, it's just, you know, it's just kind of normal words. But this these passages, and I want to show this to you, are more than likely some sort of a hymn or a poem 
or again, as we've just been talking about, some sort of a song that might have been um, sang, repeated, chanted, understood in a church context in this gathering of Colossae, right? When he, when he uses these verses. And again, when we encounter it in the Bible, which I, maybe is, I don't want to say is a mistake of the Bible because that probably sounds a bit arrogant, but I wish that it were kind of separated out. So for us to understand like, okay, something different is going on here that Paul wants us to stop and think about because again, N.T. Wright says, somebody who's writing in this way, and I'm going to show it to you in a second, wants his or her readers to stop and think, right? And he, in his commentary, almost kind of teased it out a little bit like this, where you have kind of section one, and I've, I've tried to, you know, kind of highlight some of the different ways that you can understand him. You have like this section one, right, where Paul talks about that, that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, and then it kind of talks about all the created aspects that he rules over. And then you kind of have maybe this chorus or this kind of middle section, right, where he is before all things and, uh, in him, and all things in him hold together. And then, sorry, a little bit of the overlap here. Um, and he is the head of the body, the church. Um, and then you kind of have this almost verse two. Again, so you see the firstborn overall creation and then the firstborn from the dead. And it kind of talks about how Jesus is bringing and reconciling, how his death and resurrection. And then you see, again, as, as Paul kind of structures this poem or this hymn or the song, in him, through him, unto him, in him, through him, to him. So you're kind of seeing that he's writing this passage, again, that we would understand it. Again, this is something that he wants his readers to kind of stop and think about, to kind of keep in their head, to kind of come back and, and meditate on, right? So when Paul writes this, I would say that, and we're going to look at this a little bit, this, this poem in this way, you have, you have here, the, the first section is creation, And then you, you have this, um, I think I'm going to do it like this. And then the second half is this new creation. And then in the center, you kind of have this, this concept, I would say, of the church. Right? Where you have Paul talking about Jesus over creation. You have them talking about Jesus over this new creation. Let me, I'll, I'll explain that in a little bit because that's not necessarily explicit in that passage. And then you have in the middle that he is kind of the head or he is in charge of the church as well too. Again, N.T. in his commentary says it like this. He says, the most obvious point of this poem, right, or this hymn or this song, that Paul wants to make is the parallel between creation and new creation Hence, the emphasis that is placed on the fact that each was accomplished by Jesus. Jesus, whom redeemed you, is none other than the one whom you and all the world were created. Right? So Paul's linking together creation and new creation. And then he's also kind of showing that Jesus was the top um, he's, he's linking the two, and then he's also in the church. So let me talk for a second here about creation. I want to show the new creation aspect again, too, because I don't know if that's um, very uh, explicit. And then I want to talk about the church for a second. So when we get to creation, right, if you go back to this, right, uh, right here we go. Uh, whose image is the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. In him, everything was created in the heavens and earth 
the visible, the invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, everything has been created through him and unto him, right? You have this concept here in this first passage of what we would say is like a, a single creator, right? And this kind of idea of a single creator that everything in creation was created by one person is pretty common sense to the Jews, right? The Jews would have had Genesis. They would have looked back and said, God created everything. Um, he was the one in whom all things were created. So Paul was saying something that was very common to the Jews, even for us as contemporary Christians, right? In this kind of context, we would say, oh, creation was came through the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that kind of one God expressed in the Trinity. Um, so this kind of single creator is common sense to Jews. It's common sense to us. But it would be confusing. It would be complicated, to continue with my little C alliteration. It would even be very controversial to the Colossians, to the pagans, right? To, to the kind of contemporary culture of Jesus or of Paul's day, right? This would not be something that they would have been familiar with. So it's important for us to understand that even when we read this passage, right, this is, yeah, of course, you know, God created the world and we understand that everything was created through God. But to hear that even in our culture, right, or in the first century culture would not be something that would be, wait, that's not how, that's not how things worked, right? As a matter of fact, if you were to go back and if you were to be living in that time, the dominant narrative that you would have known for the creation would not have been of a single God creator. It would have been some conflict between, you know, the gods, maybe Zeus and another God who, who battled creation was often born out of, um, out of some struggle or some battle. Caesar at one point kind of co-ops the, um, the idea of creation let me, let me, before I get into this next quote, I want to just share something with y'all. Um, I think of the Colossians books that I've been reading, this is, might be the best one, if you want to jump in for a little bit, some deeper context. Um, yeah, I, I, this has been really just interesting to read. It's not a commentary per se, but they kind of talk about the empire. They talk about the Roman context. Um, so if you're looking for some, some summer reading, it's not hard to read. It's kind of set up in a conversational format where it's like, you know, kind of a, a person who's kind of uh, questioning and inquisitive, and then they answer those questions. And so there's like a lot of dialogue in it. Um, but if you want something that's really interesting as kind of a companion along this series, um, this book, Colossians Remixed by Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmat has been, has been, of all the ones that I've read, I would say this is, this is put, I'd put that one at the top of the list. So I'm going to quote from it now. Because in Colossians, they're talking about, again, one of the things that they talk about is what was the empire like? They lived in the Roman Empire when this book was written, right? Rome was, was the ruler, was in charge. And they talk about in this book, they say, in the imperial cult and throughout the Roman Empire, it was proclaimed that, and when you see the quotes within the quote, this is, they were quoting from you know, kind of original first century sources about Caesar. The, it, Caesar would claim that he was equal to the beginning of things, right? It was the emperor who, quote, restored order and was the beginning of life and vitality. Moreover, Caesar was the savior who had put an end to, all, to war 
and set things in order and therefore was proclaimed as God manifest. Again, if you were to go back and read the original sources um, coming from the historians in that time, this is what they would say about Caesar. Equal to the beginning of all things, beginning of life and vitality, the Savior, um, God manifest. And then when you put together the head and the body, it would immediately conjure up both Hellenistic ideas of Zeus as the sovereign head of the body of the cosmos and images of Caesar or Rome as the head, the sovereign source of the body politic of the empire. So when you read this, you know, one of the things that Paul's doing, and we, we miss this, right, because we're, we, we are so far removed from it. One of the things that Paul is doing is he's speaking directly against, and he's subverting, again, this kind of whole book is called Subverting the Empire. He's subverting the empire of Rome, right? Caesar was proclaiming that he was the beginning of things, that he was the savior, that he was God manifest, right? That, and so when Paul begins to use all these words and these claims, he's literally kind of subverting the empire. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, right? That term firstborn, right? Firstborn is, we don't, I don't think we think about this in as much in our day as what, how important it was then. But again, firstborn, the firstborn son, right? The firstborn son had authority, they had status, they had importance, they possessed the right, right? And when Paul says, going back to, uh, when Paul says this about Jesus, right? Jesus, who is the image of God, the invisible one, the firstborn over all creation, he is saying that Jesus is the one who has authority over all creation. Jesus is the one that holds all things together. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. It is not just like, okay, you know. And, and think about this. This is what Paul wants people to sing in their heads, right? So while the empire is out there making the claims about Caesar being the firstborn and the savior and God manifest, Paul saying, the song that I want you to keep in your head um, I guess we could say it was a little bit rage against the machinist in its, in its very nature, right? Was this, this kind of standing up against the empire, right? Saying, no, the empire is not in charge. Um, so Paul is counterclaiming against the Roman, the Roman claims that, that were happening. But as we think about creation, right, this creation that was made and sustained and is under Jesus, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, we could say this, too, is that creation, and we understand this, has not all gone to plan, right? One of the great passages about kind of the brokenness that we feel, the, the hurting, the, the angst, the suffering that is around our world that has always been. Romans 8, through 24. I liked how the Passion Translation um, kind of said this out, but he says, Paul says this, he says, To this day, we are aware of the universal agony and groaning of creation as if it were in the contractions of labor for childbirth. Robin, Molly, you guys want to jump in on? This is probably also without an epidural too. So, right? And Paul describes the pain um, and the difficulty of our, of, of our world of creation, right? It's broken. It's hurting. It's, it's suffering. Um, and it's not just creation. 
we who have already experienced the first fruits of the Spirit also inwardly groan as we passionately long to experience our full status as God's sons and daughters, including our physical bodies being transformed. For this is the hope of our salvation. And I, I know I erased a lot of the um, prayer requests too, but I mean, again, think about the folks struggling with cancer who are in the hospital, who are hurting, who have lost, right? We experience the brokenness of creation. So creation, um, Jesus is in charge of it. He's the firstborn. He has authority, but it's not all gone to plan, right? We have sin in the world. The primary pain, the primary flaw, the primary um, problem is sin and death, which is what brings us to this kind of idea of new creation, right? How does Jesus fix the broken creation? We, we move to this, this new creation. Because this poem, I would say this, this hymn depicts one major theme or paradigm to view and encounter the Bible. You have these two competing frames of reference. You have creation, which God made, right? And then you have new creation on which the death and resurrection of Jesus is the fulcrum on which the Bible pivots, right? One, again, just two broad categories, just like you have Old Testament, New Testament, you have creation and new creation, right? I've always loved this quote by, by Albert Schweitzer. He says that Jesus was called to throw himself on the wheel of world history so that even though it crushed him, it might start to turn in the opposite direction, right? So you have the creation, you have the new creation. Going back to this passage, um, this is the second passage, right? Who is the beginning? The firstborn from the dead, right? So again, this is looping back so that in everything he might become preeminent for in him all God's fullness was pleased to, to dwell and through him to reconcile everything to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven, right? So Jesus in his death and resurrection is this starting of the new creation, right? The beginning of the new creation. And then what I think is most fascinating about this passage um, is that Paul, Paul puts the church at the center, right? In this, in this verse, in this song, in this hymn, he puts the church at the center, um, which is something kind of obviously very particular and relevant to us, the church, right? In, in this song or in this hymn or in this poem, right? The implication would be that the church is the vehicle. It's the deployment, the method, the process in which God is working his new creation in this broken, in this labor pain world, right? Its very existence assures us that everything will be remade, restored, and renewed. Um, That's why, you know, again... I see this whole poem, right? Going back to, let me go back to this slide real quick. The firstborn overall creation, right? Authority, status, importance, overall creation, right? But then creation gets broken, right? Creation gets messed up. So Jesus comes and he has the new creation, death, resurrection, ascension, is kind of the, you know, that kind of kicks it off. That's the weekend. But then again, as Paul uses this poem, 
he, he puts right in the middle the church, right? And again, the church then becomes the vehicle, it becomes the method, it com- becomes the deployment. And this is really what the church is doing, right? We are the ones who look to Jesus's life, death, resurrection. And then we say, okay, we are the ones that have to work this out in the world. Let me say just a couple things on this because we get to the church and I hope at some point you've, you've come to church and be like, well, what's a, what are we doing here? Like, what's the point of church, right? Um, again, in this, in this kind of commentary in this book, they, they probably went into more detail than I, I probably have time to do today. But they framed the church in a way that I hadn't heard. I don't know if I ever heard it framed in this way. But they, they framed the church... Um, you know, not just in the Roman Empire, but now they, they framed the church in, in this kind of imaginative context. And let me explain that for a second, this imaginative context, right? Um, yeah, let me, let me explain this. <laughs> Think about it like this, right? This is, this is how they say it. The, primar- the primal proclamation of the church is to empower those a fresh responsibility to reimagine the world as if Christ, not the powers, were sovereign, right? So again, think about the church in this imaginative context. We are reimagining the world as if Christ, not the powers, not Rome, not Caesar, not our political parties, not you know, go 500 years ago, not kings and queens, not whoever, as if Christ, not any sort of earthly power were sovereign. And then he actually quotes from a guy named Wendell Berry in here, but I didn't do all that. Wendell Berry, this is actually a Wendell Berry quote, where Wendell Berry says, the key pathology of our time, right? The key sickness of our time, which seduces and lies to us all, is the reduction or shrinking of our imagination so that we are too numbed too distracted, too co-opted to do serious imaginative work, right? So when we talk about the church here and the way that they're framing the church, right? What's the point of the church? What are we doing here? They framed it, I really like this, in this kind of imaginative context, right? The church is the one that reimagines our world, our neighborhood, our context, the powers, the dominions, The church is the one that reimagines the world as if Christ, not the powers, were sovereign. So a couple examples from them, a couple examples that I've thought of. One of the examples that they go into more detail in the book um, was consumerism, right? Which we know that this is a major issue in our day, right? How do we confront this consumer imagination, right? The consumer imagination is that that next purchase is going to make you happy, right? If I just had this, then I'd be settled, right? This kind of consumer imagination which numbs us, right? What was the the words that they, that distracts us, that co-ops us. How do we confront that consumer imagination? Think about the church. The church is imagining a selfless giving in an alternative economy of sharing, right? How do we confront this kind of just buy, 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 consume, consume, more, more, more with selfless giving, 
with sharing, with taking care of one another. So one of the hallmarks of the early church was the way that they all gathered and nobody was in need, right? Okay, think about this one. How do we encounter entertainment, right? Binging, imagination with discipline and restraint and moderation. Not all the stuff that we watch should we be watching. And then this idea that we just binge stuff where we just lose all control and we just watch uncontrollably. And maybe the church is the one that says, hey, that's maybe not the best way to exist in the world in which you just watch whatever you want, however long you want. Again, we could go back to the Rage Against the Machine example. If I just binged on Rage Against the Machine for weeks on end, it would affect me. That would have an impact in who I am and who I become and how I exist in the world. How do we encounter the entertainment this binging imagination, which this is what you get told. We just released this new season of, I think, uh, Stranger Things just came out. And people are like losing their minds just watching it all at once. And it's just like, hey, maybe that's not the best way to exist in this world, right? This is the church. We are to do this imaginative work. Here's a big one. This is a, kind of a long one, too. What about reimagining this kind of red and blue partisan divide? What about if we could sit in this room and speak frankly about politics, which we need to do, right? Without being sucked into kind of this left-right yelling accusations and blaming, which is what we see on TV, which is what we see in our, our kind of national dialogue. What if we were able to, depending, not regardless of what side of the spectrum you might lean on, but embrace a humble, listening posture that would seek the kingdom of God above the country we live in, right? And this isn't just America. This happens in, in France and this happens in Canada and this happens in South America. This happens all over the world. But what if the church was able to be a place in which we could sit here and speak frankly about politics, right? What is the best thing for our country? What uh, creates life to flourish? How do we listen to one another? How do we seek the kingdom of God above just kind of the country or the political party that we identify with, right? This is the imaginative work of the church. And, and by the way, some of these subjects, right? This is, this is this series that I want to start in the fall. How do we begin to have these conversations? How do we imagine these sorts of things in life? Here's another one. I think I spoke of this one, actually, the last one, but this just always comes to mind. How do we confront the concept of freedom, right? This kind of idea of 4th of July freedom where you have no restraints and you just do whatever you want with the imagination of having the right restraints, right? The Bible talks about us being free, yet we are a slave to Christ, which seems to contradict one another until you understand that true freedom is having the right restraints in your life. True freedom is not just being able to do whatever you want whenever you want, just because you're financially independent or because you have no one who can tell you what to do, that's not freedom, right? Um, freedom is having the right restraints. Um, so, let me think if I had any other, I thought I had one other example. Yeah, let's end with this. I don't know why I ended with this. I don't even like Walt Disney, but this kind of came to my mind. <laughs> I'm not a Disneyland person, but I know that y'all, I probably just offended two-thirds of our church by saying that one statement. I'm not a huge Disneyland person, although they do do a wonderful job. But Disney has a group of people called the, Imagine, the, the Imagineers Department, right? How many people did I just offend with that? Just, they have this Imagineering Department, right? 
so I was looking, I was like, oh, I wonder what they do. Like, what's their point? I've heard about these people's. This department is a creative force that imagines, designs, and builds life to all Disney theme parks, resorts, attractions, cruise ships worldwide, working across a spectrum of disciplines that range from creative and conceptual to scientific and technical. Imagineers blend an innovative mixture of storytelling, art, science, technology to create immersive experiences, memorable destinations, and innovative entertainment for families around the globe. That's what it is. I mean, these are the, this is like kind of the brains behind the organization, right? Disney's people who just imagine what Disney could be. And when I think about the church, and again, this is kind of spurred on by a lot of this Colossians book. And again, what are we doing here, right? In some sense, the church needs to kind of be this department, right? This imagineering department in which I, I kind of took this phrase and then I, I just, or this, this paragraph, and I rephrased it in, in church terms, right? That the church is the creative force <laughs> I think that was the sign that, that your, your time is up for the sermon also. The ch- this, the, literally this is it. The church is a creative force that imagines, designs, and brings to life the kingdom of God in individuals, communities, and cultures worldwide. Working across a spectrum of disciplines that range from local and organic to global and systemic, the church blends an innovative mixture of Christ-centered faith, hope, and love to create life, societal um, changing experiences, humble and gracious, serving gospel, serving in gospel presentation for everyone around the globe. And that, that, that could be phrased in, in different ways and whatnot. But this is, I was thinking about this, I never thought about the church. The church, in some sense, is not that we just sit around here and, you know, kind of daydream, but we, in some senses, we do. We imagine what could the world be like, going back to that original quote, how do we reimagine the world, right? This is why Paul puts it right front and center. The church is one that reimagines the world in lieu of this new creation that Jesus has enacted. We go back and we look at Jesus, we look at the brokenness of creation, and then the church comes together and says, okay, our job is to reimagine the world as if the one who initiated the new creation is sovereign, is in charge, is the firstborn, has the authority. I think that's about all I got for this morning. Is that good? Is that enough to get us thinking about this, some things this morning? This one? Yeah, I mean, maybe condense it a little bit. I know the walls aren't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm serious. Yeah, I think I was trying to figure out how you're going to do that. Sorry, buddy. No, that's really that's that's really thought. I mean, I I, I don't. I was kind of. I, yeah. Yeah. You know, when I was reading this, as I just read it, it was one of those moments where, in the moment, I thought it was really good, and then I I was reading it and I was having a conversation in my head, like I that that didn't come out all that good. <laughs> But, you know, there's, there is something here that's just like, oh, yeah, this is what the church is, right? We should be the, the, the imagination force um, and brings life to the kingdom of God. That's a, that's, that's a good idea, Brian. I mean, we kind of have our little signs here, you know, that we have in the entryway, but maybe this at some level having this on.
mm-hmm. but you need to get down to the point. Maybe you could go over it, mm-hmm. get it down to a, not like a paragraph. Like right, right, right. To it. Hey, we're going to go out in the community. How are we being innovative and creative? Because that's what I really want. Right. Yeah. And then that way we go on the same thing. Yeah. No, that's good. I think we, you know, probably some people would advocate for a field trip to Disneyland as well, too, just to kind of really get behind the scenes. Let's keep talking about this. Um, was there a verse that struck out to you as you read Colossians 15, 1, 15 through 23? Uh, what other implications could you think of in that kind of creation, new creation, church, paradigm? Um, what in our community, and this could maybe be specifically here in West Garden Grove or Orange County, um, really could use a fresh imagination by the spirit of the examples given consumerism, entertainment, politics, freedom. And again, that could be expanded as well too. To, um, uh, we could talk about sexuality. You could talk about social media. You could talk about all sorts of things, um, which might be most problematic in our culture. So just take a few minutes to kind of gather your thoughts, maybe turn to a person next to you and then We'll just we'll just share out um, just for a few minutes after that.